we are in a series called You're Killing Me. And this series has so far been incredibly powerful even in my life as I've listened to Tamara's and to Steph's message and as we've been wrestling with those things that kind of lurk in the dark corners of life and do spiritual harm just below the surface where we can't see them. And so we wrestled with fear and doubt and with guilt and shame. But both of those are what I would call active in our life because uh, they're, they're, they're right in our face and they're, and they're, they're there all the time. But I want to talk today, we're going to wrestle today with something uh, that is incredibly dangerous because for us, it works in a more passive way, uh, kind of under the surface. It's an area that does incredible damage to our faith, not when we do the wrong things, but when we do nothing. Today, I want to talk to you about and wrestle with spiritual laziness or apathy Did you know the Bible has a lot to say about laziness? And yes, both the physical kind and the spiritual kind as well. And I think as we get started, it's important, excuse me, to define our terms uh, because there are really a few different forms of laziness that are out there. So it's important to note the difference between two of them. Uh, The most common definition of laziness is that laziness is doing nothing. It's just being a, a, a sloth. It's, you know, Laying around, doing nothing. And, and this is an absolutely accurate definition of the word laziness. And, and, and scripture talks about this kind of laziness and warns against this kind of laziness at all. Let me give you a couple examples. Proverbs chapter 20, verse four. Those too lazy to plow in the right season will have no food at the harvest. There's a danger to sitting around doing nothing. Proverbs 21, 25. Despite their desires, the lazy will come to ruin for their hands refuse to work. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul writes, even while we were with you, we gave you this command. Those unwilling to work will not get to eat. So there is this picture that laziness or doing nothing is not a good thing. And without question, God doesn't want us to just sit around and do nothing. So we got to take personal responsibility. There's a picture of personal responsibility for yourself, for your life, for your basic needs. And this is true both physically and spiritually. But this is not the type of laziness I want to talk to you about today because this is the one we think of. I want to talk to you because the other definition of laziness, it's, it's far more hidden. It works below the surface and I'm convinced it's killing the church. This definition, definition of laziness says laziness is doing just enough. It's not that I'm doing nothing. I'm just doing enough. La- this type of laziness is stopping short. It's not doing any extra. It's not going deeper. It's just getting by in this life. And honestly, just getting by in the faith. And it's this type of laziness that affects so many Christians. And this has huge implications both on this life and on the life to come. Now, I'm not concerned with those to whom their faith is is nothing. I'm concerned with so-called believers who do just enough in their faith. Proverbs 18 verse 9 says this, one who is slack in his work is brother to one who destroys. And so the picture here is of doing some work, but just enough of it. And I wonder as you think about your journey of faith, are you guilty of wanting just enough of this faith thing? Is your goal just enough Jesus in my life? Just enough church to get to heaven? Just enough that people think I'm a good person? Instead of hungering and thirsting after God, after uh, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, we want just enough. And the tragedy of this way of thinking in life, first off, it tells me that Christians don't understand grace at all because there's no such thing as doing enough. 
There never has been any way to earn your way to heaven. Uh, we're saved by grace through faith. But when it comes to surrender and this idea of surrendering my life to him, just enough is never enough, okay? There, there's no such thing as just enough faith. There's no such thing as just enough of God. There's no such thing as just enough of Jesus. And I think one of the sneakiest ways the enemy attacks us is when he gets us to settle for just enough in our faith. So that's what I want to wrestle with today. And I'm, I'm going to dive into a parable. It's in, found in Matthew chapter 24. If you use one of our Bibles, we're on page 594. Uh, page 594. If you didn't bring your Bible, you can raise your hand. The ushers will bring you one. If you don't own a Bible, please raise your hand. It's our gift to you. Uh, Matthew chapter 24. Uh, there's so many places in Scripture that I could go to to talk about this topic of spiritual laziness. <clears throat> but the Holy Spirit drew me to a certain parable, and it's honestly probably not the first place you would think to go on this topic. Okay, for those who know your scriptures, uh, this is likely a familiar story, and yet I think we'll be able to share some insights today with you that will have a massive impact, or can at least have a massive impact on how we approach our faith. So the parable is found in Matthew 25, but I, I need to start back in Matthew chapter 24, which is all about the signs of the end of time. Everyone wants to know when Jesus is coming back, but he didn't tell us on purpose because he wants us to live every single day ready, to live every single day as if Jesus could come back at, at any moment. None of us know the day or hour of his return, but let me ask, what if you did? What if you knew when Jesus was coming back? What if, you, if he came and he told you and you knew for sure, if you knew three weeks from today at eight o'clock in the morning, Jesus was coming back. He was gonna appear right here on this platform next to me. What would happen if you knew that? Well, my first guess is that you'd be coming to the 8 a.m. service, okay? Uh, you'd be here, the place would be packed at 8 a.m. But the second thing that, that I wanna note is this. Would it change your life? If you knew three weeks from today Jesus was coming back at 8 a.m. and he's gonna stand on this stage, would it change your life? The answer I want to be true in your life is it wouldn't change anything. Because I'm already ready, Pastor Phil. I'm already doing everything God asked me to do. I'm already living the life he asked me to live. I don't have to try to straighten my life up real quick for Jesus. I don't have to try to, to do anything. I'm living every moment as if I'm ready for his return. That's the answer I would love to be true in all our lives. But I don't think that would be the answer for most people. Jesus drives home the importance of this in verse 42. Matthew chapter 24, verse 42. He says, so you too must keep watch for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Understand this, if a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time for the Son of Man will come when least expected. So the key here is be ready when? Always. The life Jesus longs for you to live every single day is a life where you're living ready for his return, not a life where you'd have to hurry up and get ready for him to come back. Now, I know the church has been waiting a long time, and every once in a while, we need a reminder, he's coming back. Jesus is coming back, and he wants us to be ready. And to drive home this point, he tells a parable in chapter 25. Now, again, if you know God's word, you probably know all the parables in chapter 25. The first parable uh, in, in chapter 25 is a story that we're going to look at today. It's called the parable of the 10 bridesmaids or the 10 virgins, okay? The second parable is 
the parable of the talents. This calls us to use what God gave us for his kingdom and to not be wicked and lazy servants. It's a picture of the final, uh, the, the third uh, parable is a picture of the sheep and the goats. The picture of this, the final judgment where God's gonna separate, you know, the sheep from the goats and, and, and uh, you know, how he's gonna separate them is based on what we did for the least of these. Now, we've preached on these other two parables this year. And, and I've, I've read all three of these parables a lot of times. I've preached on them a lot of times. I don't think I ever picked up on the fact that in these three parables, there's a common theme. So Jesus has just spent chapter 24 telling us to be ready. And then in chapter 25, he tells three stories that paint three big pictures of what it looks like to prepare for his coming. And all of them have the common theme or picture that there is a division between wise and foolish. Wisdom in faith seems to be associated with readiness and foolishness seems to be associated with being unprepared. It's wise to do all you can to be ready for his return. Uh, It's wise to live out your faith in everything you do every single day. It's foolish to do just enough. Now, for sake of time, we can only look at the one story. So let's jump in Matthew 25, starting with verse one. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough oil, olive oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. So this is a picture of a wedding and weddings were a little different back then. Uh, There were three stages of a Jewish wedding in that day. There was the engagement, which which was a formal agreement made by the fathers, not, not by the, but by the fathers, Then there was the betrothal where mutual promises are made. And then there was third, the marriage, which happened approximately one year later when the groom came at an unexpected time for his bride. And they would often be up to a seven-day celebration where the bride would be prepared for the wedding and then the negotiation would happen between the groom and the father as to what the bride price would be for the bride. And then the groom would usually host the wedding at his place And the virgins or the bridesmaids, you can think of them, had the job of announcing the arrival of the groom. He's going to go get the girl. He's going to bring her back to his place. And the the bridesmaids are going to announce the arrival, but they have no idea exactly when the groom is going to arrive. They know he's coming. They know it's going to be in this period of time, but they don't know exactly when. And their job was to be ready to make the big announcement. So this story has metaphor upon metaphor upon metaphor. Uh, The real meaning of the parable can only be seen by unpacking the layers and understanding who is who. So for instance, Jesus is the groom. Okay, no surprise there. I think you probably figured that out. The The bride in scripture always refers to the church. We're the bride of Christ, okay? These bridesmaids paint a picture of Jesus' followers those who are anticipating his return for his bride. So this is a Bible-believing group of people who are expecting the coming. And, and if the parable stopped here, we would be like, all's good. All 10 believe in Jesus. All 10 believe he's coming. And yet he still speaks of them as five wise and five foolish. And what seems to be the only difference between them is that the wise brought enough olive oil for their lamps and the foolish brought lamps, but no extra oil. Now, Certainly, this is alluding to the idea uh, of being prepared, but it also takes us back to our definition of laziness. Often laziness isn't just when we do nothing, it's referring to those who do just 
enough. The, the lesson here is it's foolish to only do just enough to get by. It's foolish to do just what you need to get by. How often do I settle for a faith that's just enough? As I've grown in my faith over the years, I've learned the wisdom, even if things are going really great in life right now, of getting up early every morning to be with Jesus and to read his word and to pray, even if it's just for a little while, because just enough often isn't enough. And I've learned the importance of <clears throat> showing up regularly and leaning into church and being part of group and, and, and getting into a biblical community so that I have more than just enough of God in my life. These five foolish virgins took their lamps just like the wise ones, but they took just enough oil to get them by, but not enough extra oil to carry them through the waiting. And here's what struck me. Here's what sort of rocked my world, okay? If this parable is about the metaphors in the story, and if, if Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride and the bridesmaids are Jesus followers, what does the oil represent? What is it that's fueling the fire in their lives? As it turns out, when you dig through God's word over and over, oil represents one thing. Oil represents the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, at risk of sounding a bit Pentecostal here, I wonder how many people claim the name of Jesus but have just enough of this whole Jesus thing, this whole faith thing in their lives, but they're missing the Spirit of God in their lives. There's no fuel for the fire. There's no light in their lives. They have enough faith to get them by through the good times, but the minute that Jesus tarries, the minute that things get a little dark, they find themselves without the light of the Spirit to guide them through the dark seasons of waiting. Apparently, you can know God's truth in your mind, but still not have been born again by His Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the very Spirit of God, the life of God within you. And when we surrender to faith in Jesus Christ, it described as a death to our old life and new life in him. We no longer live, but God's spirit takes up residence in us. He's the one who gives us power. He's the one who gives us the ability to love God with our heart, with our soul, with our mind, with our strength, and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. That's not something we do on our own power. If you've tried to do it on your own power, you know you can't. You fail miserably at it. This is something God's spirit in us makes possible through his grace as we fully surrender ourselves to his will for our lives. And, and so here's the scary part. We can look ready, but not be ready. You can look the part. You can look ready, but not be ready. The five foolish virgins appeared ready. They had their lamps. They were, they were there, but they weren't actually ready for the bridegroom's coming. And this is where far too many churches and far too many Christians actually live. To try to do this faith thing without the spiritual surrender is like trying to light a lamp with no fuel. I think the church can too easily become a group of people who know God's word but do not have God's spirit, who have been ignoring the spirit long enough that the fire in their souls has burned way down. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul writes these words, do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Do not scoff at prophecies, but test everything that he said. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. Listen, even baptism is a picture of this in our lives. When we get baptized, it's a picture of being buried and we go under the water and we die to our old life. 
and then were brought out of the water and were raised to a new life in Christ through the Spirit. We're baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus talked about the importance of this spiritual renewal. In John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus said, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. This isn't a description of a faith that's just enough. Now listen, please understand me. I'm not talking about legalism or trying harder. I'm not talking about following a list of rules. I'm talking about a life so transformed by the Spirit of God that your life begins to align with Scripture as the Holy Spirit makes you new from the inside out. Without oil, the wedding party was not ready for the bridegroom. And without the Holy Spirit, no one is ready. No one is ready for the return of Jesus. In Matthew 25, verse 5, it says this, When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Now listen, as I mentioned earlier, I know we've been waiting a long time. Okay, And I know that the first century leaders like Peter and Paul fully expected Jesus to return within their lifetime. Now here we are thousands of years later and we're still waiting. And I think Jesus tried to be clear with us here in this parable. He said, when the bridegroom was delayed. When the bridegroom was delayed. He's basically telling us, this is going to take longer than you think. I'm going to be delayed. And it will be sort of easy for everyone to fall asleep at the wheel. Now I want you to notice, both the wise and the foolish fell asleep. Because certainly as believers, We should always be ready for Jesus. But I think rather than getting upset uh, that we fall asleep, Jesus is saying, listen, I know at times you're going to get drowsy. God is incredibly patient with humanity. Scripture tells us that God is not slow in keeping his promise. He's just so patient with those who do not yet know him. And I get it. The waiting, as it drags on and on, it's easy to sort of, kind of fall asleep spiritually. And I think every believer here could probably use a reminder that we need to wake up in our faith. It's going to happen. But, but here's what I want you to see. It's what happens when the bridegroom arrives that draws a distinction between the wise and the foolish. Verse six. At midnight, they were roused by the shout, look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and meet him. And the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. So when Jesus comes, you'll either be ready or you won't. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. We also don't know when our last day on earth will be. Could be today. I don't know. The foolish person is the one who says in his heart, I have lots of time to live any way that I want. I'll get serious about this faith thing later. I want God's spirit. I do. I just not quite yet. Just not quite yet. I want to, I want to, you know, just enough of Jesus to kind of coast through this part of my life. And then when I, when I get a little older, when it gets a little later in life, when I have to, then I'll count the cost and I'll go all in. David Wilkerson, in an article for worldchallenge.org titled Resisting Laziness, spoke of this reality this way. He said, churches in America and around the world are filled with millions of people calling themselves Christians who have no intimacy with Jesus. They spend no time in prayer and do not pick up their Bibles to see what he desires of them. Somehow these people have attached themselves to Christ's name wholly on their own. Our Lord will have no part of such an arrangement. See, that intimacy 
that we long for is only found through the Holy Spirit. So the bridegroom returns and everyone has to get ready. They're, oh, he's here. They wake up. And the, but the foolish virgins find they do not have enough oil to relight their lamps. Verse eight and nine. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, we don't have enough for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some for yourselves. Now I used to, I read this as, when I was younger and I used to think, that's super harsh. They're, they seem kind of terrible. Why, why won't they share their oil? If you've got enough oil, why wouldn't you just share it? What I didn't understand is the reality of the oil. It wasn't that they didn't want to share it. They couldn't. What the foolish virgins were asking for in this parable were the benefits of a spirit-filled life, but without the spirit. But you can't borrow someone else's faith. You can't borrow someone else's obedience to the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter eight, verse nine, Paul writes, but you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. Listen, I can go on YouTube right now and I can watch videos of people lifting weights and exercising and doing cardio and hit workouts and all the different things. And that might be motivating to me, but I won't gain any strength from watching those videos because you, you can't watch the video and get the results. Well, you can't watch someone else's relationship with God and desire what they have in the spirit. If you want that for yourself, you have to surrender your own life to the spirit. If you live a life that's just enough here on earth, and then one day you stand before God based on that life, but you've never actually surrendered to the spirit, no one will be able to lend you their faithfulness in that moment. Verse 10 says, but while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was locked. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, believe me, I don't know you. Again, this, this parable uh, is familiar in cultural context. You need to see the cultural picture. In weddings in this culture, latecomers were not permitted. It was an insult to the groom to show up late for the wedding because the groom can't be an afterthought in our lives. The picture we have to get in our heads around here is that there is such a thing as too late. There is such a moment as too late. God has been insanely patient, insanely gracious with humanity so far, but there's going to be a day where it will be too late, where the time will be up and it will be too late. Like it will be too late to choose to follow. It'll be too late for those who have been lazy, who have settled for just enough of Jesus to lean into the work of the Spirit in their lives. If you don't make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, if you don't surrender your life to his Holy Spirit and begin to allow him to transform you from the inside out, it won't matter how often you went to church. It won't matter how much you volunteered in the community. It won't matter how good a person you thought you were because this isn't about earning your salvation. It's about choosing it. It's about choosing him. And one day it will be too late to choose him anymore. But here's the good news I need to proclaim to you today. It's not too late yet. If you're here 
and you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, it's not too late. And I'm speaking to those of you who call yourself Christians too. If you have never surrendered to the Spirit of God in your life, there's still plenty of the Spirit's oil. He wants to fill you to overflowing, but it's up to you. How he longs for you to be ready when he returns. Verse 13 says this, so you too must keep watch for you do not know the day or the hour of his return. You might think, well, how do I know? How do I know if I've made this decision? The answer is easy. Look for evidence in your life. When I light my gas grill or my gas fire pit and my propane tank is empty, it's very obvious very fast. We don't have fuel for this fire. The flames disappear. The grill starts to cool. There's evidence. Listen, I'm not asking whether your life is perfect. I'm asking if there's evidence of the Spirit's fire in your life. Is there a passion? Is there a burning in your soul for more of God? Do you have a hunger for his word? Do people comment about the joy they see in your life? What's different about you? Does your heart break for the salvation of others? Do you have a hunger for other people to know his will uh, and, and to come to faith? Do you have a hunger to know what his will for your life is and to follow that call? Do you long to see your neighbors come to know Jesus Are you finding victory over sin more and more every day as his spirit does a purifying work in your life? I'm not saying all those things happen automatically, that they're all happening at once. What I am saying is that if the spirit's fire is burning in you, there will be evidence in the life you live. And maybe you find yourself wanting that in your life right now, but you've been settling for just enough. Just enough. Don't wait until later. Lean into the Spirit right now. If you've never made that choice, you can right now.